702. Call Talk at 9 on 011-883-0702. 27 minutes to go before we get to 10. Up next, as I said, Professor Anthony Turton. Prof, good evening and thank you for joining us. Good evening to you and the listeners. Great stuff. So, Prof, it's a very interesting uh, situation. It's a bit of a messy situation. Excuse the pun. Um, but you've managed to extract COVID-19 RNA from various sewage samples in the country, thereby making history. Very interestingly, how does this, why is this important, number one? Why is it so historical um, in the first place? And why are we looking there for RNA strands of, of COVID-19 in particular? Yes, it's, um, it's very important because as your previous speaker said, uh, we are facing a new normal now. And we actually don't know what that new normal entails. And we are on a very, very steep learning curve. And one of the big issues, of course, now is when is it safe to open up the economy? And in particular, is it safe for certain uh, activities to continue, such as, for example, going to school? What about mining operations uh, that uh, potentially can be shut down? the, The economic implications of this are quite significant. So uh, what we've been looking at now is uh, trying to fill in the missing pieces of data that the uh, command council needs to actually make a very, very important decisions about whether to open up or shut down the economy. And you'll notice that uh, the, we, nobody knows how many people in society are asymptomatic. And these are the people that are either carrying a virus and potentially can infect others, but they also, they also affect the, the, the total number of deaths. That was the morbidity rate. At the moment, the morbidity rate appears to be very high because uh, we are comparing it as a percentage of those that we know are, are test positive. And those that test positive are already sick. But, uh, but this is only a very small fraction of society. So the question is, how do we find that missing piece of data? And how do we start rolling out this technology to... Uh, to, uh, to assist uh, the very vulnerable communities, schools, uh, old age homes, uh, prisons, things like that. I mean, that's extremely important because ultimately, you know, that boils down to how the virus is, is spreading um, in which communities, in which particular areas. But just from a scientific perspective, you know, by finding these strands of RNA, which in my opinion, and not in my opinion, but and, and this is, I guess, a question because I don't, can't really have an, an opinion on an issue that I don't quite understand. Um, when, when we find these samples, you know, it, within the sewage system, what does it tell us about the virus, where it survives, how it survives, and, and how, you know, how it then can propagate itself from this particular point. Because, of course, the one thing that we all understand or know at this stage as ordinary members of the public is that we should be concerned of people coughing and sneezing around us, people coughing and sneezing into their hands, touching surfaces and then leaving it there. Does it tell us anything new in terms of finding it, um, you know, these strands of RNA in, within a sewage system, as an example? Okay, you've, you've, you've asked, uh, what you said many, many things in that statement, so I think we should maybe unpack all the different bits and pieces of what you've said there because, sure. uh, uh, you know, there, there, there's some very important uh, information embedded in there. So let, let, let's, let's rewind the tape and go back to where it all started. 
And we'll start with, with the SARS and the MERS uh, epidemics that you spoke about a couple of minutes ago. Sure, sure. So, so while, while corona is very new to us, SARS and MERS is not. There, so there's been a fair amount of peer-reviewed science, in fact, particularly from China. And China started reporting on the presence of, 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 of uh, a virus in sewage, sewage effluent coming out of hospitals. That's where they first started reporting it. So that is a, that is a matter of fact now. That's no longer a matter of dispute. What is, what, is, uh, what, uh, what is disputed now is whether there is a fecal old transmission route. In other words, whether the virus that is shed in human waste, either urine or feces, whether that virus is still active. Now, that starts getting a bit confusing because the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia, has made a statement to the effect that wastewater coming, uh, coming out of a sewage works going back into a river will not carry the virus. But now there's the assumption in that statement that the wastewater works is functioning to an international standard. Unfortunately, 60%, 66%, in fact, of our wastewater works are dysfunctional, some totally 100% dysfunctional, or, or, or dysfunctional to a certain, you know, to a varying degree. So we cannot state with confidence that the that the wastewater works discharging effluent back into a river is entirely safe. But we don't know if that virus, in fact, is still is still active or still virulent. So what we can do, and we've and we've proven that last week now, uh, you, we can extract samples of RNA from, from sewage, uh, and we can then amplify that using a, a laboratory technique known as PCR, a polymerase chain reaction. And from that, we can get a, a fairly accurate, well, certainly we can, get a, we can get a binary answer of, is there virus present, yes or no? We can, we can definitely do that. But what we also hope to be able to do, and this is still has to be proven now, is whether we can quantify that uh, and, and, and take it up to uh, a statistically relevant uh, percentage of the population. And if we can do that, or, or when we can do that, then it becomes a very useful tool because now we can start seeing which parts of the population have got a, have got a, a wave coming uh, or which part of the population is under control. Um, because uh, what what the Dutch have done just a few months ago, they were managed to extract uh, the, the RNA from sewage a few weeks before the first patient was actually tested positive by other means. So in other words, this is a very valuable precursor of, uh, of, of something happening and something coming your way. Uh, that for me is actually quite fascinating. But now, Prof, I understand that we're looking at a second wave of testing and that uh, boils down to, you know, what you were talking about around the spread um, of uh, COVID-19 and uh, the spread of the virus in particular. Do you mind explaining that? What What is that second wave going to do? What is the information well, okay, that you're going to well, from that? I don't think we can talk about a second wave in South Africa because we're still dealing with the first wave at the moment. Mm-hmm. So, 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 so the first wave is still coming our way. In fact, uh, I would say that what you're seeing happening at global level now mm. is that the, epi- the epicenter of the pandemic is shifting now. And first it was in Italy, Spain, then it went over to America. Now it's shifting to the southern hemisphere. It's now in uh, Brazil and the other parts of the world as well. But the developing world is now starting to become a new epicenter. So, so I think we're seeing a, maybe a seasonal shift, but we're also seeing a shift from the developed to the developing world. 
So that's an important shift that we need to understand uh, because there's a lot of implications from that. So, so in the developed world where, where the lockdown has happened and people are now unlocking the economy and people are going back to work again, this is where there's talk now of a second wave and will it come, won't it come, maybe it will, maybe it won't. So that's an uncertain situation. But certainly in South Africa, we haven't yet experienced the first wave. Now, it's still coming our way. So now we start getting into what is the most appropriate method of providing information to the decision maker. Mm. And here I, would, here I would classify the decision maker not as one monolithic body, but rather as a cluster of decision makers, each responsible for different things. So let's just unpack that into brief two broad categories, government decision makers and private sector decision makers. And each of those decision makers are responsible for, for different things, but they're all equally important. So, so for example, uh, 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 if we now continue with our shutdown for very much longer, mm. then the economic implications start becoming increasingly dire, which means that the, that, that the long-term prognosis of the pandemic now, now changes from a human health issue to an economic catastrophe that might last for a generation. You know, so, we, so, so there's a, there an important strategic question that decision makers must, must deal with, and that is that at what stage do they open up the economy and, and how do they make it safe to open up the economy? How do they do it in a controlled way? Can you, uh, can you open up the economy, for example, parts of the country that you know are under control where other parts of the country are, you know, are still rampant and out of control? So these are, these are very nuanced questions, and these are extremely, extremely important questions. But at the moment, the existing methodology of testing is unable to provide the information for those answers, for those questions. And that is why I think the sewage surveillance is probably likely to become an emerging uh, field of, of, of epidemiological studies globally. I mean, I find that actually quite fascinating, you know, that, that that's the, the route that we are taking on this one. But as you said, I think part of the uh, problem on a global level is is the inconsistencies when we talk about sanitation and sanitation supply and sanitation systems, I guess, and how those work, um, you know, from a from a global perspective, I take it. Yeah, so, so yeah, if I can just explain how the process works now. So basically, uh, we know from the Chinese work on, on, on SARS and MERS mm. that, uh, that viral shedding takes place through feces and urine. We know that. And, and, and one would expect to find more of that in a hospital than you would in the normal society. For sure. Even the Dutch came along uh, an organization called KWR. It's a, it's a research institute in the Netherlands. And they started doing this surveillance on sewage works in the Netherlands and they started detecting the virus uh, before before there was any positive cases. So they so they, they demonstrated the uh, the precursive nature of this type of, 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 of screening. And then then it started popping up in different parts of the world and we we reached out to the Dutch. When I say we uh, I'm a founding member of the South African Business Water Chamber. And the Business Water Chamber is interested in uh, working very closely with government as part of the public-private growth initiative where the private sector is trying very hard to support government through this very, very difficult time. And, you know, we, we, want, to, we want to form a solid, a solid unity where we bring the private sector capacity to bear, uh, you know, to, in support of this crisis. So we reached out to the KWR and we cut a deal with them that we could uh, fast track their technology into South Africa. Mm-hmm. And within a very short space of time, uh, when I say short space of time, 
uh, took us eight weeks from the time that we reached the agreement with KWR to finding the first positive. In other words, finding a laboratory that already had the capacity uh, and, 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 you know, we wanted to find a laboratory that we didn't need to buy new equipment or have to upskill people. We wanted people with the existing capacity. And we did that in eight weeks. And we then, we then took samples from five different sewage works uh, from different places, and we tested them in the laboratory many hundreds of kilometers apart. And the reason for all of this was to demonstrate that we could, in fact, uh, crack the, uh, the logistical challenges of sampling at multiple places uh, and, and then, and then uh, having these things delivered uh, in a way that doesn't uh, degrade the, uh, the, the, the biological material. Remember, it's a forensic uh, 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 chain of evidence we preserve mm, in the process. So we have to keep that forensic chain of evidence. That's very, very important. And what we've, so what we've done now is just a proof of concept and uh, by taking samples from five wastewater works, uh, three of those tested positive on a binary uh, positive-negative uh, uh, scale, and uh, one of them tested completely negative, and, 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 and the fourth one uh, had a very weak signal. Uh, and when I say weak signal, there's an internationally defined standard defined by the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, uh, and, and it's a technical issue, but once you start replicating the, the RNA that you find, uh, depending on the number of replications uh, to, to reach uh, uh, the, this particular threshold, that's what they define as a weak or a strong signal. Okay. So, 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 the, so the, the fourth wastewater works had a very weak signal, but it was below the threshold uh, for a binary decision to make it, uh, to make it positive. So now, now, we're now really we have a situation where of the five wastewater works, one of those wastewater works is, is negative. So that implies that that community is in fact clean. That, that community is not carrying the virus. Now, that is, that's hugely important because if that extrapolated up to the country now, and let's just say we can find parts of the country that are negative, that are, that, are, that are not affected, then surely that part of the country should be allowed to go back to work. And therefore, the existing scarce resources of the state should now be directed at parts of the country that are in fact positive. So this surveillance methodology can start becoming very, very powerful in redirecting scarce resources to places where it's needed urgently, as opposed to spreading it out thinly over the whole country, you know, in the, in, yeah. in the false belief that, that it's needed everywhere. I mean, and that, that speaks to that very first conversation that I, that I had with a, pre, a previous prof, with uh, Professor Francois Fenter on that issue, about how do we prioritize testing, how do we prioritize where um, you know this virus is spreading, and who who are the populations that are more impacted and, and more infected by COVID nineteen at this particular stage? But Prof, this also takes us to another conversation, which I think is just as important, and that is the use of of technology in this instance. I mean, we've constantly been hearing about con- uh, you know technology being harnessed uh, in an effort to track. Um, as well as in an, uh, not just to track, but also in an effort to trace and, and assist and treat people with COVID-19. I mean, I find that absolutely fascinating how technology is being used in this instance again. Yes, so I think what, what has been happening over the last 20 or so years is that there's been a revolution on, uh, in the scientific world on the instrumentation side. Mm. And this is driven to a large extent by nanotechnology. So the nanotechnology has, has enabled us to look at extremely small particles and understand the physics of, of very, very small things. 
the physics and chemistry of our very, very small things. And that's only been possible because of, of instrumentation that has mm. enabled us to look down to molecular level. So it's, it's, that, it's that advancement in, in instrumentation across the board that has now enabled us to, to look at these things. So I'll give you an example. Uh, a couple of years ago, about five years ago, uh, we were able to look at, uh, just to give you, give you one example, orange juice. And we could tell you, uh, uh, by looking at that orange juice, what pesticides had been used uh, when, when those oranges were growing on the tree. Wow. No, no, so that's quite remarkable, you see, because you can now start coming up almost with a fingerprint of specific products, and you can start seeing exactly uh, where they come from or what contaminants they have. Or Think of it as a fingerprint. Now, exactly the same happens with, uh, with RNA. RNA, uh, while, it, while the virus uh, 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 breaks up and is destroyed you know, in the presence of, of, uh, of soap and, and alcohol, etc., the strands of the virus, or the the, the, the code, you know, the actual uh, the, um, the 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 nucleotides that, that make up the, the uh, RNA, are not. They they are quite persistent, so they end up floating around sort of loosely. And what what we can now do is we can detect minute quantities, very very small traces of those from a passing fluid, from sewage, for example, and you, we uh, we can then. Uh, 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 because of that, we understand the chemistry and physics of this very, very well. We can replicate that, and uh, because because DNA and RNA replicates in a certain precise way, we can replicate that up very, very rapidly. And this is where the PCR technology comes in. So, so you first extract your your, your RNA from your sample, and whatever that value is, you call that value one, and then you put it through a PCR uh, to chain reaction, and this is automated in a machine. So it goes in, uh, first, the first iteration of the sample is one, and then it gets doubled. So your second iteration of the sample is two, and then to four, then to eight, and then 16, and 32, and then from then it just becomes exponential. So, so each time you make a photocopy, if you like, of the previous total, total sample that you had. And mm. it's, 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 uh, from that you can now start quantifying the actual, the actual uh, no, uh, amount of, uh, of, of, of RNA. But it gets even more fascinating that because uh, because the, uh, with the advancement now in measurement techniques, uh, there are certain fluorescent processes where whereby uh, uh, specific proteins fluoresce under very precise conditions. So by enabling or, or by using these highly highly precise reagents, you can get these proteins to fluoresce under ultraviolet light in a very precise way, and then compare that to the known genome. Of the, you know, of, of the RNA, of the RNA uh, 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 strand, of, of, of the COVID-19 RNA. And from that, you can get extremely precise and accurate uh, 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 fingerprint that you say, yes, this definitely is, is COVID-19. It's, it's, not, it's not polio. It's not something else. And in fact, the lab that we, that we use is very fascinating. We're going to be announcing in the next uh, week or so, you know, you, you, the, the, the name of the entire team and the labs and all the other people involved. But, but, but the laboratory involved actually uh, tests for all kinds of viruses, you know, just through, through a routine way. And, uh, and just these routine tests show like 20, 30 different, different ranges of viruses in, you know, in living organisms. So it's, a, it's quite fascinating to watch it happening, uh, you know, or, and almost at the speed of light because they, in that particular case, they use laser beams to, uh, to, to identify the viral strains. So it's, it's very advanced, very sophisticated stuff. 
Mm. And I think you're going to see a, a very, very rapid evolution because the Water Research Commission is now also involved. And the Water Research Commission, in my view, is likely to, uh, to start evolving the algorithm side, the mathematical side, the modeling side of this whole thing now very, very fast in, you know, over the next year or so. Uh, so, so, so while we, we are capable of measuring it now, we know that without any doubt the proof of concept has been established. But now the, the, more, the more precision, the greater precision will start coming out and particularly how we can map that and how we can start seeing exactly which parts of the country are, you know, are, are growing rapidly and which parts of the country are, are under control. And we can then start applying it out to micro level and we can start saying, for example, we can monitor school. Just imagine, imagine we can monitor a school mm. and how many schools are there in the country and we can say, right, that this school here uh, whatever the school name is, that school, we can, we can give you a, a reasonably accurate figure that that school is COVID-19 negative. Therefore, you could carry on as a normal life. But, uh, but there's some other school somewhere else, we can ask about picking up COVID-19 units. Therefore, something has to happen in that particular school rather than shutting down the entire education system. So that, I think that's where we're going with this technology. No, I mean, that for me is absolutely fascinating. But I think the other thing that it also can do, and Prof, you'll tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I can imagine that this year we'll also then be able to keep a handle, if not so monitor um, the the possible return, assuming that we go through this particular wave. You and I discussed the waves of this particular virus that at this stage we don't know whether it's going to be a, a persistent friend returning every um, you know every year. Uh, seasonally or whether this thing is going to go away eventually but ultimately we'd also be able to monitor I guess the increases and the the ebbs and the flows of this particular virus at this stage don't you think? Yes, so not only that virus, uh, in fact a range of other viruses. A range uh, of other other health issues as well, yeah. uh, Yeah, 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 so with this this technology uh, uh, all you use is just different fluorescent dyes, you know, just uh, or different markers for different viruses. So it's exactly the same process, but you know, you do, you must not look at polio, for example, or or any other any other viral infection okay, that, that that you've got. And in fact, the laboratory that we're using um, is is, uh, is is looking at different pathogens that you find in in, in herds of, of dairy cows, where they actually monitor every single cow in the herd, and they will tell you exactly which cow in the herd is now picking up Staphylococcus, for example, which, you know, and 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 what's happening to that. Uh, uh, I mean, that for me is absolutely stunning. And um, it just shows, A, what technology can do for us. Because, I mean, uh, Prof, I'm sure you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself that um, if we had to go into the past and we had to look at the Spanish flu, if we had to look at many of the other global pandemics that we've faced in the past, um, you know, without this particular, we could have been back to square one with the Spanish flu situation if it weren't for technology like this, if we didn't know now what we know now because of science, because of technology, because of a being able uh, to, to, in essence, uh, control the spread of disease or at least minimize the, the, the spread of disease. Yes, if, you, if you're interested in that conversation, there's a very interesting book uh, by a gentleman called Edward Tenner. And it's called Why Things Bite Back. And you can just Google it. Uh, Google Tenor, T-E-N-N-E-R, and Why Things Bite Back. And, and, and Tenor uh, was a scholar that wrote some years ago uh, about technology. And, 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 and central to this whole thing was the notion of a revenge effect. 
So, for example, when human beings started uh, inventing uh, penicillin, uh, antibiotics, uh, initially it was a wonder drug that so we could develop and advance very rapidly. Uh, I'm, I'm a generation, my generation is the penicillin generation because you know, the, the previous generation died because they, 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 they didn't have access to this miracle uh, uh, antibiotic. But of course, you now have a revenge effect uh, that, that you start getting multi-drug resistant uh, pathogens, etc. So, so underlying this whole thing is the, is, the, is the need for human beings as a society to constantly mobilize technology and ingenuity at a rate faster than, than, than viral uh, mutations can take place or genetic mutations can take place. In other words, we have to constantly invent ourselves out of the unintended consequences of the problems arising from our previous generation of inventions, if you understand what I mean. Um, so, so, so societies that are capable of doing that are going to uh, are going to beat this uh, this this, this uh, pandemic. And societies that are societies that are politically inept or uh, or unable to mobilise sufficient resources fast enough are not they're going to going to come out. And now I'm thinking of, for example, the United States of America, where where here you have a sophisticated first world country, and even in such a country. My understanding is they haven't even reached 10% testing, you know, in, uh, in, New, in New York State, for example, okay? So, they, so, so how can we in the developing world even hope to get beyond the 10% stage? And therefore, we have to start looking at other alternative methods. So, you know, there are many things I've just said now, but, but it comes out the fact that even a technologically advanced society like the United States does not necessarily imply that they are going to get on top of this thing mm. simply, simply because their political systems do not allow for the deployment of science, engineering, technology without the, without the, uh, uh, the, the sort of uh, the control, if, if you like, by, 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 by political ideologies and political egos. So that's, that's the challenge that we now have. You know, we have this technology, we can, we can deploy it, we can, we can move fast. We've, we've moved very, very fast from, from, from conception to now. We can have this thing running literally in a month from now. We can have it running in the different centers if there's political will, if there's political buying. So we always get back to that point now. Will there be buying? Will there be some sort of, you know, some sideline issue? I don't know. But the technology enables us to do it. And it's only that by controlling that technology that society can continue to advance in the 21st century. Prof, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for explaining what is potentially uh, a very complex scientific issue in such simple terms. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Much a pleasure. Thank you for, for hearing me out. All the best. There was Professor Anthony Turton, uh, as, as I said, uh, Professor of um, Enviro- uh, sorry, uh, Professor of Environmental Management at the Centre for Environment, uh, Environmental Management at the University of, the, of Free State.